following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. In the year 450, in modern-day Macedonia, a boy named Justin was born into a peasant family. He was a swineherd tending to pigs until he joined the army and started rising through the ranks until, through an unexpected series of events, he became the emperor of the entire Roman, Eastern Roman Empire. He is known to history as Justin I, inaugural ruler of the Justinian dynasty and uncle to the most famous Byzantine emperor, Justinian the Great. A peasant watching pigs rises to become the ruler of all the land. It's a classic rags to riches story. But this morning, we're going to be looking at another story from history that is every bit as astonishing, but this one won't just be a story from rags to riches, but first, from riches to rags. Please turn with me in your Bible to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, we are in the middle of a, of a series working our way through this letter, the Apostle Paul's letter to a particular church in the city of Philippi in northern Greece. Nearly 2,000 years ago, Paul helped establish this church. You can read that backstory in Acts chapter 16. But now he's, he's way off in Rome, in prison, addressing them by letter. From the very beginning, what we've already seen in chapter 1, his pen has been dripping with affection for these believers, as he's been calling them to be a united front as they focus their aspirations on the gospel and on getting the gospel out. So now we come to chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. Here's what I think is the, the main idea of this passage, and therefore, if I'm doing this preaching thing correctly, the main idea of this message. The main idea of the passage, and therefore, the main idea of this message. The secret to church unity is humility. 
The secret to church unity is humility. And the secret to humility is staring at the self-giving love of Christ. The secret to church unity is humility. And the secret to humility is staring at the self-giving love of Christ. We're going to think about this theme, this main idea, in three points as we work our way through these verses. First, the road to unity. We'll see that in verses 1 to 4. Second, the descent to agony. That's verses 5 to 8. And third, the rise to glory. That's verses 9 to 11. So the road to unity, the descent to agony, and the rise to glory. First, the road to unity. Look there at verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Every time you see a therefore in the Bible, you should first ask what question? What is it therefore? It's a transitional word, okay? Paul is pointing back. He's saying, in light of what I've just written, in light of your call to to live as kingdom citizens by standing firm and suffering well, keep doing so together. His burden is still what it was at the end of chapter one. His burden is still the church's togetherness. That's what verses one and two are about. The refrain of ifs there, you see those ifs in verse one, that that doesn't mean that Paul is uncertain. He's just employing a bit of poetic flair. He's saying, insofar as you derive encouragement from union with Christ, and I trust you do, and derive comfort from his great love and partake together of the same Holy Spirit and have the same tender affection in your hearts, insofar as these things are true, because these realities are true, then please make my joy complete. Fill up my heart to the brim by being like-minded by staying unified. Now, he is not saying that your aim as a church member should be to suppress who God has made you to be, to never voice your opinion, to avoid all disagreement, to essentially just become a bunch of clones of one another. No, that's called uniformity. That's called uniformity, and it's not the secret to churches, it's the secret to cults. (laughs) What marks a healthy church is unity, which is both messier and more difficult and more beautiful than mere uniformity. Because it's not about easy, trivial commonalities. Unity is about lifting up together the most important realities in the universe. In other words, the Bible's vision for church unity is not some kind of flat, boring, untextured sameness. It's about a rich and inviting oneness. Not sameness, but oneness. 
And that distinction is crucial. Well, if this kind of oneness is the goal, according to Paul, the goal for churches like ours, what's the means? How does it come about? What is the soil which will cause this oneness to spring up? The answer is verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4 is the soil in which verses 1 and 2 spring up. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. So do you see the connection, again, between verses 1 and 2 and verses 3 and 4? I just, I just described verses 3 and 4 as like the soil in which verses 1 and 2 grow. To, to change the metaphor, if, if verses 1 and 2 are the destination, the goal, then the Bible's saying that the way to reach that goal is only through one route, and that is verses 3 and 4. In other words, the way to unity is the road of humility. The way to unity is the road of humility. Humility. And what is humility? Where it's one of those words that you hear a lot in circles like this, church services. But it's not some airy-fairy, abstract virtue. No, humility is work. (laughs) I mean, did you hear Paul's words, Paul's description of it? Don't do anything from selfish ambition. Consider the well-being of others before your own. Don't just treat people as well as you treat yourself. Treat them better. This is hard. This is impossible if we're left to ourselves. And what does this look like practically? What would it look like practically to live out verses 3 and 4, especially here as a church. I don't just mean on Sundays, but I mean in all of our life together as a covenant family, a congregation of the Lord Jesus. Well, it it would look like, among other things, not insisting on your own way, not always needing to have the last word, realizing that in the vast majority of your interactions with people, unless the, the Trinity or the deity of Christ or something like that is at stake in the vast majority of your interactions with people, it is more important to be humble than to be right. It means that when you disagree with another church member, not if, when you collide with another church member, when you have a contrary opinion, when you disagree, again, unless it's one of these massive things enshrined in our statement of faith, when you have an ordinary disagreement with a church member, this would mean that you don't immediately hit the drama button and turn up the emotional temperature. You can just agree to disagree and keep loving one another. Imagine the thought. That takes maturity. That takes maturity, which is another way of saying humility. Positively, what this looks like, what this would look like in the life of our church. And I think by God's grace does. I I commend you all because I I don't feel like 
I'm having to scold here. I feel like I can just commend because this is so much of the fruit of what I've already seen in our first year together as a church. But what it looks like is, is that remembering that valuing others before yourself, putting the interests of others before yourself can happen in the most ordinary, mundane details of life. When you take a meal to a church member in need, you're embodying Philippians 2.4. When you pray through your membership directory, the second most important book you own, when you pray through it, which you are by definition doing what? Thinking of others, which means you're embodying Philippians 2.4. When you show up on Sundays, not just with the mentality of what can I get out of this service today, but with the mentality of who can I encourage today? Is is there someone that I, I could put some wind in their sails? You are thinking in line with Philippians 2, 4. When, when you go to talk to someone who doesn't have anyone to talk to, maybe because they're difficult to talk to, you're embodying Philippians 2, 4. When you serve in children's ministry, you're embodying Philippians 2, 4, putting the needs of others, not just the kids, but also their parents before yourself. We just nominated our first slate of deacons. All these brothers and sisters are models of Philippians 2.4. Some of them never have a Sunday where they're not serving in some capacity in order to make our experience here better. Heck, to make it possible. I was going to mention a couple names, but then I realized it describes all of them. (laughs) Oh, beloved, the, the, the secret to the kind of unity that all of us want. Let's be honest. We want this. We, we read verses 1 and 2, and it's this beautiful, soaring vision. We, we don't want to settle for uniformity and sameness. We want this unity. We want this oneness. But the secret to the kind of unity we all want comes through the kind of humility which none of us naturally has. But thankfully, We're not left to ourselves. We have a very compelling model. That's point number two. The the road to unity, point two, the descent to agony. There's a reason this passage isn't just four verses long. I'm really grateful it's not just four verses long. Paul Or maybe five, because verse five would be Paul saying, well, there you go. I told you what to do. Don't blow it. But no, in verse five, instead, he turns to show them how. Here's the only way you're going to have a shot at this. The only way you're going to be able to foster the kind of unity to get that kind of soil that will lead to the growth of humility. I'm sorry, the the kind of humility that will lead to the growth of unity. Verse 5, here's how. In your relationships with each other, with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Paul takes what he's calling us to do and he anchors it in the reality of what God has already done in Christ. You want to be unified as a church? Verses 1 and 2. You want to be humble? Verses 3 and 4. Then take a long look. Take a long look at the attitude of Jesus. 
which is what the rest of this passage sketches out. It may not even just be a passage. It may be a song. Many scholars think that in verses 6 to 11, Paul is actually quoting an early Christian hymn that predated this letter, but, he, but he's quoting it. He's referencing it as a way to drive home his point. But whatever the origin, verses 6 to 11 are, are some of the most majestic words in Scripture. I mean, Jacob read them earlier. I was tempted to come up here and just close us in prayer. This is an amazingly soaring passage. I mean, in this short span, in verses 6 to 11, we're going to move from the glories of eternity past to eternity future. But as we're going to see, the way from that one mountain peak to the other, the way from eternity past to eternity future is downward. Verse 6, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. We're peering back into eternity past and we're seeing the pre-existence of Jesus Christ, meaning he existed before he showed up in Bethlehem. He wasn't just an idea in the mind of God, a plan in the mind of God. No, he was a divine person. For all of eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existed together, not as three gods, but as one, one in being, one in essence, one in nature, and yet distinct in their relations with one another. Here, Paul zooms in the camera lens on the second person of the Trinity in particular. And he says, the, the first thing you've, you've got to grasp about the mindset of Jesus is that you've got to understand he's always been God. Perfectly happy with the Father and the Spirit, worshipped by billions of angels, surrounded with splendor and glory, and yet, and yet, he did not consider this equality with God, this divine status, as something to be used to his own advantage, as something to be exploited for his own eternal comfort and gain. Rather, instead of clinging to, grasping his divine rights and privileges, verse 7, rather, he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Verse six locates us in eternity past. Verse seven brings us into time, specifically 2,000 years ago. This is what happened at the incarnation. It's what we celebrate at Christmas. The eternal son of God made himself nothing. He emptied himself by refusing to take advantage of his divine status. What does that mean? He refused to take advantage of his status in such a way that he would let it excuse him from his task of becoming our redeemer. Remember, the focus here is on his attitude, not his attributes. In becoming human, he did not cease to become God. 
This is so important to understand because when we hear a phrase like he made himself nothing or he emptied himself, we can think that, oh, okay, he emptied himself. Well, what's getting emptied out must be his godness, his deity. But the wonder of the incarnation, which you don't just have to celebrate at Christmas, the wonder of the incarnation is that this emptying was not a subtraction. It was an addition. He didn't lose his deity, he took on our humanity. What he gave up was was not his divine attributes. What he gave up was his divine rights. That's what he relinquished, the privileges and the prerogatives of deity in order to come down and clothe himself in humanity. There's a moment at at the end of Jesus' earthly life when he's praying to his father. It's known as the high priestly prayer. And he says something interesting in John 17, 5. He prays, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Verse 5, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the blank I had with you before the world began. Whatever is in that blank is what Jesus gave up because he's He's praying, hey, restore that to me. Glorify me in your presence with the blank I had with you and enjoyed with you before the world began. And he doesn't say, glorify me in your presence with the deity I had with you before the world began. No, the word and the blank is glory. He didn't give up his deity. He gave up his glory. As the early church fathers would say, without ceasing to be what he was, without ceasing to be what he was, he became what he was not. That is so carefully put. Without ceasing to be what he was, he became what he was not. Without ceasing to be God, he became man, and his humanity didn't compromise his deity. I I wonder if this confuses you. At first in my notes, I had written kids, comma, because I was going to talk to kids, but then I realized this probably confuses all of us. So kids, listen up, (laughs) but I'm talking to your mom and dad too. This idea that Jesus is one person in two natures, divine and human, it's, it's not easy to get our minds around, okay? Mystery is the essence of theology, and here we are in the center, the epicenter of mystery. But when you hear this idea that Jesus is fully God and truly man, maybe you have this notion that he's some kind of combination of the two, right? You know, maybe 50% God, 50% human. But the Bible is stubborn on this point. This is not just a kind of theological, esoteric, like interesting FYI. This is so important to understand, to, under, to, to realize how it was possible for you to be saved from your sin. Jesus is not 50% God and 50% man because we don't have a half and half savior. Remember, the incarnation was an act of addition, not subtraction. Before coming to earth, Jesus was 100% God. And ever since coming, he has remained 100% God. 
and yet is now also, now and forevermore, 100% man. Now, I know it's Sunday, so I will address the kids here and just say, I know it's Sunday, but how's this for some math class? We have a 200% Savior. But don't let that math, that theological math, make you forget the context. Verse 3, which should still be ringing in our minds. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. If anyone's ever had the right to that kind of attitude, surely it's God. And yet the one who had that right, the only one who had the right, gave up the right to put the interests of others first. Well, I hope you see here how different Jesus is, not just from us, but also from our first parents. How different he is from the first Adam. What did the serpent slither into the Garden of Eden to whisper? You will not surely die. It, it's just, God knows, he just knows that when you, when you bite the fruit, that you're going to become like him. Don't you want that? Don't you want equality with God? Crunch. He counted equality with God. Adam counted equality with God something to be grasped. Adam was already in the image and likeness of God, but that wasn't enough for him. He wanted to grasp and to seize what was not his by right. And that's equality with his maker. What a contrast to Philippians 2. Jesus was already equal with God. He already enjoyed the full spectrum of divine benefits, and yet rather than exploiting them for himself, which he could have done, and been infinitely just, worshipped by billions of angels, but instead of exploiting his divine privileges for himself, he emptied himself of them for you. D.A. Carson sums it up well, quote, the eternal son did not think of his status as God, as something that gave him the opportunity to get and get and get. Instead, his status as God meant he had nothing to prove, nothing to achieve. And precisely because he is this kind of God, he made himself nothing and gave and gave and gave. And where did this giving, giving, giving mindset lead him? Verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Again, we couldn't get to God, so God came to us after centuries of rebellion by God's people. God's only begotten son takes on a, an embryo. He becomes a baby, a toddler, a teenager, a man. For 33 years, he displayed flawless obedience to his heavenly father. That's why the word obedient shows up here in verse 8. Because 
Jesus lived the morally perfect life that Adam had failed to live, that Israel had failed to live, and that you and I have all failed to live. We pray prayers of confession often in our service, but Jesus Christ, though he prayed a lot of prayers, he never once prayed a personal prayer of confession because he never had any sin to confess. The night he was arrested, the night he was arrested, he ate one final meal with his disciples. We, we know it as the Last Supper. He made arrangements for the room and the food to be prepared ahead of time. Now, the disciples were used to this kind of thing. They were used to Passover meals. So they would have walked through the door that afternoon and been unsurprised by what they smelled, the, the smell of food wafting from the table. They would have been unsurprised by what they saw, a towel and a wash basin on the floor. But there was one glaring omission in that upper room. Where's the servant? There's the towel, there's the wash basin. Where's our servant? Friends, the last thing they would have expected is watching their mighty master himself kneel down, assuming the role of a nobody, a slave, in order to wash their feet. I mean, we look at this scene 2,000 years later, and we're kind of moved by it. We, we find it a little inspiring. People even do it at weddings sometimes. In the ancient world, this was not an inspiring scene. This was repugnant. It was absurd. In the words of Plato, how can a man be happy who is the servant of anything? And yet, there's the Lord Almighty on the floor for others. But of course, he managed to descend even further the next day. In the scripture reading, Earlier, we heard this prophecy of Isaiah 53, 700 years before Jesus, forecasting a suffering servant who would be obedient to the point of death. Listen, throughout history, many, many religions have acknowledged and affirmed the value of humility. It is not unique to Christianity that we count humility a virtue, especially among modern religions. But no religion has ever dared to speak of a humble God. No other religion. And the reason is simple. The, 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 the idea seems contradictory. That just the idea of humility applied to the category of deity just seems like a category mistake. So Paul's claim that the biblical God, not a member of a pantheon, not one option on a menu of deities, but the one creator of all, that he, that that God would stoop to serve his creatures all the way down to a torturous cross. That is not just startling, it's scandalous. But it's ex exactly what happened. This is what Paul is wanting to press home, not just into our minds, but into our hearts. This chapter rings with the news that even though God the Son had it all, the worship of angels, the love of Father and Spirit, yet still he came from the splendor of heaven 
to the squalor of a stable. And on a lonely night in a little town called Bethlehem, the journey of obedience commenced a journey that would culminate on a hill outside Jerusalem as Jesus hung on a cross, a Roman execution chamber in the place of rebels against his own majesty, like you and like me. There is no greater example of self-giving love. No greater example you could point to in the history of the world of self-giving love than the one who left heaven when he could have stayed and who stayed on the cross when he could have left. This is the ultimate riches to rags story. I can't improve on the poetic words of one old pastor The ancient of days became the infant of days. What deep descent from the heights of glory to the depths of shame, from the wonders of heaven to the wickedness of earth, from exaltation to humiliation, from the throne to the tree, from dignity to debasement, from worship to wrath, from the halls of heaven to the nails of earth, from the coronation to the curse, from the glory place to the gory place. In Jesus, humility and glory in their extremes were joined born in a stable, cradled in a cattle trough, wrapped in swaddling clothes of poverty. No place for him who made and knows all places. Oh, deep humiliation of the creator, born of the creature. But his descent was the dawn of mercy. Because we could not ascend to him, he descends to us. Amen. The road to unity, the descent to agony, and third and finally, the rise to glory. Verse 9, therefore, that is, as a result of all of that, as a result of his obedient humiliation unto death, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Here we have the resurrection of Jesus, his ascension, his coronation, his reign as Lord and King of the universe, all shrink-wrapped into one little tiny verse. God exalted him to the highest place. That's the whole complex of events. Because Jesus, Paul is saying, because Jesus was obedient to death, obedient to the point of a shameful death on a cross, God has now vindicated him. You have to understand how this appeared to the Jews at the time, even those who were following Jesus. No Jew at the time was expecting to ever see a dead Messiah. How could the Messiah die? He's supposed to sit on David's throne forever. So to see Jesus slowly suffocating to death like a weak and pathetic slave would have been definitive proof that the gig was up. Another imposter, not Emmanuel. His death looked like a defeat. And therefore, verse 9 tells us that God the Father issued a reward. 
giving him the name that is above all names. This is why it's important for you to know your Old Testament, because when we read something like this, it's not immediately clear, okay, well, what is the name that Jesus received? Because if, but if you think about the backdrop, if you think about what Paul is alluding to, what he's drawing from, then it shows us in striking splendor exactly what this means. I want you to take a moment. You can keep a finger in Philippians 2, but turn back with me to Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42. Earlier, we we heard the prophecy from chapter 52. Look at Isaiah 42, verse 8. The question we should be asking is, what is the name bestowed on the resurrected and ascended Christ? Isaiah 42, 8. I am am the Lord, Yahweh. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. Now turn three chapters ahead, Isaiah 45. Forty-five, starting in verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself, I have sworn. My mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. So so before we turn back to Philippians 2, you've got to be tracking with me. Who is it saying this? Quote, I am God and there is no other. So this is the one true and living God who will not share his glory with any other pretenders to his throne. And he, the only creator God says, before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. Now flip back to Philippians 2 and let those words of Yahweh ring in your ears when you read, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess or acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the the Father. Do you see what is going on? Paul is doing something that would appear blasphemous to Jews. Paul is taking sacred language reserved for Yahweh alone, and he's applying it directly to the man, Jesus Christ. This is where you need to take your Mormon and Jehovah's Witness friends, not just to Philippians 2, but to the backdrop of Isaiah 45. Because don't you see, when the New Testament authors refer to Jesus as Lord, it's not just a title of respect. It is an affirmation that he is the creator God. Lord is not just a reference to a godly man or a godlike man or a man who became a God. It's a reference to the only God who became a man. Perhaps you know this. If you've talked to a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness friend, they're, they're happy to affirm that Jesus is the son of God. Try it out. Say, do you believe Jesus is the son of God? And they will say, absolutely. And then you say, okay, and by that, do you mean that he's God the son? 
and they will say, no way, that's blasphemy. He's not just the son of God. He is God the son. Now, in case you're, you're wondering, what is this about Jesus being given this name of Lord after the resurrection? I mean, I thought he's been Lord all along. Don't we at Christmas sing, Jesus, Lord at thy birth? We do, and we should, but, but something new did take place. Something brand new took place when he was installed at his father's right hand. He received a title that, yes, recognized who he had always been, but it also reflected what he just accomplished. He is the Lord Almighty in a whole new way, in a whole new way because of his role and his achievement now as the incarnate obedient son. And this idea of public recognition has everything to do with the image from Isaiah that Paul applies to Jesus of every knee in the universe bowing and confessing his name. Here is where I just have to level with every one of you in love, particularly if you are not following Jesus. Do you realize what the Bible is claiming about you in particular? The Bible says here that the day is coming soon when everybody will bow down before King Jesus, before the King of glory, and you are not exempt. Even if you are not a Christian, you are not exempt. That day is reserved on your future calendar, even if you didn't put it there. You will bow before the Lord who made you. The only question, the only question is, when are you going to do it? Are you going to bow to him now as savior or later as judge? But bow you will. And because he is not just a judge, but is a merciful and loving and generous savior, he holds out mercy in his hand. And he says, if you're a sinner, if you've made a wreck of your life, if you've lived for other things, if you're an idolater, if, if you are addicted to things, I love you. I came for you. My heart is drawn to you, to sinners like you. Bow down in repentance and faith and be saved. Know him as Savior today so that you don't have to wait until the day when you will be forced to bow and acknowledge him as king. Well, in conclusion, I just need to take a deep breath, sorry. This morning, we have plumbed the, just, just a fraction. I mean, this is, this is just a fraction. This is why heaven will be eternal because it's going to take all of eternity to figure out what happened when we got saved. But we, we've just plumbed just, just a fraction of the depths of who Jesus is and what he came to do. From pre-existent glory, from pre-existent glory, he began his great descent. Have you ever thought about it like this? If he, imagine the descent like, like a staircase. Of course, we're just speaking in metaphors here. There's no other option. 
But imagine that if he had stepped down that staircase from eternity into time and become an angel to rescue fallen angels, you do realize that heaven would have erupted in shouts of praise. But he didn't stop there. He kept descending the staircase. He could have gotten off at the level of mighty political ruler. His own people would have erupted in shouts of praise, but he didn't stop there. He kept descending the staircase. If he had taken Satan's offer in the wilderness to turn stones into bread, just to have a bite to eat after 40 days of fasting, surely you deserve that, Jesus. We wouldn't have a savior. Satan brought to Jesus, you realize what's going on in the wilderness, Satan is bringing to Jesus the same kinds of temptations that he brought to Adam. And as the true and better Adam, Jesus has to undo what the first Adam did. But he didn't stop there. He kept descending the staircase. Now, if, if he had become a wonder-working rabbi, his peers would have loved him. But if that's all he was, we wouldn't know his name but he didn't stop there. He kept descending the staircase. Now, if he had been born in a feeding trough for animals and lived a life of poverty with no place to lay his head and been rejected by his people and betrayed by his friends, sounding familiar, but in the loneliest hour of his life, if he had said, Father, my will be done, we would still be lost in our sins. Or if, while hanging on the cross, as heaven watched, we know that 12 legions of angels were standing on the edge of heaven, ready at a whisper to swoop in and save him. We know that if Jesus had just whispered the word on the cross, he would have been taken up to glory forever and worshiped by angels for eternity, and you would be lost in your sins. He didn't stop there. He kept descending the staircase. Friends, it is going to take, as I said, all of eternity to fathom the depths of his descent. As the pastor of our sending church once said, when you see him descending that staircase of humility. See, here is the, the main thrust, the main idea of Philippians 2, 1 to 11. It's not merely meant to be a deep dive into Christology, the study of Christ. It's meant to have practical implications for the church. And here it is. When you see Christ descending that staircase of humility, do you follow him or do you pass him on the way up? Oh, River City, may we live together in unity because we have learned what it means to race to the back of the line and to the bottom of the stairs. The secret to unity is humility, and the secret to humility is staring and marveling at the self-giving love of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we cannot grasp and we cannot articulate the glory and the beauty and the majesty of who you are, much less what you've done in coming on a rescue mission to save us from our sins. We praise you for coming from eternity past into time, from heaven to earth, and leading us into a future of eternal joy with you, pleasures forevermore. And we pray that in the meantime,
until we make it home, you would help us to pursue unity by way of this kind of humility. And it's in your beautiful name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.